Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week we have Alex Osterwalder with his Boss Talk Business Model Innovation. Welcome to the Business of Software Podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Swiss-based Alex is a gifted communicator and author of Business Model Generation, a book all about business models that has sold over a million copies. Business Model Generation is a handbook for analysing and innovating business models. It combines strategy and design in a practical way. Business models and innovation techniques are presented in a visual and comprehensible way thanks to clever design. This working method, which was new to the management world back in 2009, is now much more universally applied. In this talk, you'll hear how to implement this practically in your business. Happy listening. Now, I thought it'd be interesting to start with the story of the book because we did things differently. And I think it connects very well with this theme of truth because we co-created the book, which means we said, let's write this book with other people out there. And when you do that, actually everything that we pushed out as content was visible and people could say, hey, this is crap. It's very easy to you know, just write a book, publish it, and if people think it's crap, it's no, never gonna affect you. We actually went out there and people told us, this doesn't work in reality, you know, this is not how it really works in a company. So that was really, really fun, fun process. So let me go into this for a second, just this whole story of the book, because I think it really introduces the idea of business model innovation, what we're gonna talk about pretty well. So, I did research um, on business models and I wrote a PhD on the topic and the title was called, I always have to check this, The Business Model Ontology, a Proposition in a De Design Science Approach. Okay, so much to truth. <laughs> you get a PhD for a title like that, but if I'd say ontology, in this room it might fly, particularly with those who are more into the technical details, but business people, like we all are, also would run away. So. We thought, let's take this and turn it into a book that's more accessible, where we don't use the word ontology, it's banned. Okay, so I thought, you know, it was a couple of years after people were actually using this stuff from the PhD, I thought, I want to write a management bestseller. And that was very naive, because basically, if you look at the industry of books, I'll start with this to get us into business model thinking, you actually have one million books published every year in English. It's a pretty competitive industry. And if you take business books, 11,000 are published every year. So guess what? Nobody was waiting for our 11,001st book, okay? And we wanted to write a management bestseller. How naive can that be? So it's even worse than that, actually, this is a declining industry. 12% are disappearing, so if you visualize that, it means going up in flames. And we had this idea of wanting to write a management bestseller. And when I say we, it's with my co-author, who was my former PhD supervisor. And I actually said, we need to turn this into a bestseller. He was a bit more modest. Probably it's also because I'm a bit more crazy, and that's why I didn't stay in academia. Now, what did we do? First thing we did is we changed the product. We actually tried to do everything different 
from business books because I think business books are quite broken. And they're hard to read, they're long, they're fat, they're sometimes too theoretical, they're not practical. So we made a book, it's very visual. So we did product innovation, right? We hired a designer who would help us design the book. So it was an extremely different book, and you have it in your bag, so I'm not doing a sales pitch here, okay? And some of you have already looked at it. Now, why did we do it? Because we, think, we thought this would fix part of what is broken with business books, is that to convey ideas, you need to use visuals, particularly when it's a topic as complex as business models, okay? That was the first part. Now, would a publishing company have taken on a book like that? What do you think? Visual book, very different from what exists, very expensive to produce. Would a publishing company jump on this? European authors who you know, are unknown, we're not from Harvard, we're not from Stanford. There's no chance, no chance, a publishing house would take on a book like that. And some of them regret now, okay? Now why is it? Because they have certain ways of doing things. Certain tradition, certain roots, they've always done it like that. It's very difficult to change. So what did we do? We said, well, you know, we're going to change the business model. We're actually going to self-publish. Self-publishing self has a little bit of a stigma still. But we thought we'll do things differently. We'll co-create, as I said, we'll ask people to join us. Now that is not revolutionary. For business books at that time, it still was. Now, what we also did is we said, you probably haven't heard of me before, <laughs> no, particularly then, and I'd come to you and say, hey, I'm going to write a management bestseller. Do you want to join? You know, you can potentially participate, have your name in a book that's going to be something that's going to change management, how thinking is being done in business models. Does that sound interesting? Okay. It could be, right? But you know what? Actually, we think it's so good what we're doing, we want you to pay us $24, so I need your credit card information. Okay, you've never heard of me before. You're going to give it to me? <laughs> well, actually, 100 people signed up very quickly because we gave them something. We did our market research. We understood what they really wanted. People want to be some, part of something bigger. They want to participate in a community that discusses business models. And they want to join some kind of movement. So basically, People joined very quickly. We raised the price 50% because we wanted to keep this community small. We raised the price 50%. That's what I call inverse pricing. People still joined. The more we raised the price, the more exclusive it got. People still joined. And three days before sending the book to the printer, because we didn't have a publisher, we asked for $250 and people still joined because they wanted their name in the book. Now, do you think a publishing company would have done that, these experiments, opening up and doing this in a visual way? And of course not. And they regret today because the results are pretty impressive. It was a top 10 business book last year in many airports, you can find it. But more interestingly, it's gone to the furthest corners of the world. South Africa, Australia, Antarctica, I don't know, <laughs> nobody here from there today. But we could have an impact because we did things differently, because we tried, because we experimented. And it's mainly because we changed the business model. Now, business models is a word we use very often. Who's never ever used the word business model 
Never. Okay, you'd be the fourth person in the world. Nobody here? <laughs> okay. So we use it all the time. So let me do a little exercise with you. It's what I call a buzz group with your seat neighbor. I want you just quickly to introduce your business model to your seat neighbor, okay? Vice versa. Two minutes, explain what your business model, the business model of your company or software company is, okay? Two minutes, let's go. What's the business model of your company? <laughs> okay. Okay, let's do this together. So, I just wanted you to quickly interact on the topic of business models, right? So, you all explained your business models. You all use the word business models. So, let's do another little experiment for about one minute. Basically, if you use the word, right, you know what you're talking about. So, what I want you to do now is, in groups of two, to quickly define what do you actually mean with business model? This word that we use all the time, you just explained your business model. What goes in a business model? How would you define a business model? So take a minute in the same groups of two and just, you know, figure out what you mean when you say the word business model. What's behind it? What's the concept? What goes in there, okay? One, two minutes, let's go. What's a business model, okay? Okay, let's do this together. Let's do this together. So, what's a business model? Who, who can tell me what a business model is? There's no right and wrong because you, you all, you know, use the word. So, what's a business model in your opinion? A way, a way to make money. Any other definition? Okay, what goes in a business model when we describe a business model? What components would you describe? What a company does, how it competes, how it makes a living. So we have another couple of concepts like competition also. Anything else? How do you describe a business model? What's a business? Why you're going to be profitable. Somebody said sales channels. What else will we mention? How an organization thrives. Okay, perfect. Anything else? Other concepts? Yeah? Okay, the model of how you create long-term value. Okay, I have a mic, but it's a bit far. Yeah, just one, two last ones, yeah? Why you do what you do, why others should care. Okay, why others should care. You know, did you all describe these things when you were describing your business models, these different concepts that came up? Okay, I asked this question all around the world, everywhere. Can I get people to sketch out what they think they mean with business models? And there's no right and wrong, there's no natural science here. But what you'll get is, actually, many people mean something else. There's a different language. You know this idea of the, the Tower of Babel, where everybody has different, different languages, this, this biblical concept? Well, basically, it means this, that we use this word a lot, but we all have different mental models. Some think profit, some think channels, some think maybe even technology or operations we actually don't speak about the same thing. Some overlap, profit often, product probably goes in there. Some people speak about customers, who their targets are. But we don't speak about the same thing. Now, how does a meeting look where you get your team together and you talk about your business model and you don't start 
with the same mental model or the same language. How's that meeting going to look? Or when you explain your business model to the person you, know, you were talking to before, you know, after 10 minutes, sometimes you, you get a blank stare. They still didn't really get it. They got maybe the product, but the business model, not very clear. So basically what you get is this. You get these meetings where very smart people have conversations, but they don't, you know, kind of, you get these blank stares. We don't have a good conversation. And I did this little sketch in the airplane after reading this book by Dan Rome. You might have read his book, Back of the Napkin. This is his new book coming out called Blah, Blah, Blah. Because that's what happens a lot when it comes to business models. We don't have a good conversation. And we just use words, but not even the same language, when if we would really want to think through our current business models and talk about new future business models, we should go beyond the blah, blah, blah that we have today. So this was kind of the idea when I started my research on this topic years, years back. What would a, a shared language look like to talk about business models in order to create better business models, invent new business models? How would that language look like? So that's the introduction to the talk, the fact that we don't have a shared language. So we're going to look at three things very quickly in the 40 minutes that we have now. Business models as a language, how could we better talk about business models in order to create better ones, invent new ones? It's the first part. Second part is, well, okay, language is one thing, but how do we come up with good, maybe innovative business models in order to create a competitive advantage? What's the mindset there? And we'll look at a little bit how designers work. And in software, we have software design, so there's already a little bit of of a mindset there. And the last part is how do you test before you build? And this is something that comes out of the whole web startup movement with customer development and lean startup, right? How do you apply that to business models? We'll quickly look at that. So let's start with the first part. You already discussed what, what's a business model. I'll give you an alternative definition, a language to discuss your business models. And then after giving you an example, I want you to actually do it pretty quickly. So we call this the business model canvas. So this is different from the word I showed you initially. It was called business model ontology. We switched the word ontology for something more practical, a canvas. What do you do in a canvas? You paint. You can make something you know, visual, tangible. You can paint your existing business model to better understand because you just made it visual and tangible. But you could also invent new business models if you're a startup or if you're a large organization that wants to create new growth engines to better understand what we're talking about. You need to visualize it to make it tangible, to have a good conversation. So what goes in that, in this language to describe, analyze, and challenge, and ultimately invent business models? What goes in there? I'll give you the, the, the nine building blocks that I would put in there. And some of the things you mentioned, like competition, we didn't put it in there. We can see why afterwards. So how do you describe a business model? First thing you want to describe are your customers. Who are your customer segments? So if we take, let's take the New York Times. What are the customer segments of the New York Times? Customer segments of the New York Times. Advertisers and subscribers, right? Two very different 
customer segments and in Clay's words, with two very different jobs to be done. The subscribers or readers, I would call them, to be more general, because some people don't subscribe, they just buy it at the newsstand, right? They want to be informed and entertained. That's their job to be done. Advertisers have a different job to be done, which is to reach an audience and sell. And for both segments with, with the different jobs, you'll have a different value proposition. Fancy word to say a, a bundle of products and services, right? For both, you'll have a different one. So if you're Google, you'll have a different job for the searchers than you'll have for the advertisers. But both are customer segments. One is a user, doesn't pay, but still, you have a value proposition for them to attract them, right? Okay. Then you want to ask yourself, well, what are the channels I use to reach my segments? In the case of the newspaper, is it the internet? Is it physical newspaper? Is it the iPad? What are the channels you use? Then, once you're doing business and you know how you reach them, you want to ask yourself, well, what type of relationship are you building with them? If you're a private bank, you'll have a very personal relationship. So, how much, for how much did you sell your last company? For <laughs> four or five hundred million dollars? Okay, you will attract a lot of Swiss private bankers. And as a private bank, a banker will try to build a personal relationship with Jason and your, your daughter there, right? Because that's the next generation. If I'm Amazon, I, I will probably not have a personal relationship. Do I have a long-term relationship like the private bank with, what's your name? Michael. With Michael? Does Michael have a long-term relationship with Amazon? So far, so far yeah. It's not just transactional, it's long-term. Is it personal? No, but it's personalized, right? And those two different choices will have a different impact on the business model. Is it going to be personal, like key account managers for a software company? Or is it going to be long-term, but based on automation, which also can be personalized? It has different consequences on the business model, okay? And then obviously you want to ask yourself, well, how am I going to capture value from what I just created in terms of value? What are the revenue streams? So if we take Google, what makes them insanely wealthy as a company? What's the revenue stream? Okay? When you say that, you say advertising, but you also say, what's the particularity that makes them insanely wealthy? It's the fact that they auction off the search terms, right? So it's advertising, but it's also the pricing mechanism. So you really want to think of, well, what are customers really willing to pay for, and how? Through which pricing mechanisms? Is it a standard price? Is it negotiated? Is it an auction? Because that can make a huge difference. So then you know, okay, what's the value we're creating? For whom, how we're reaching them, how we're capturing value? Now you want to sketch out, well, what do I really need in terms of infrastructure to do that? What are, first, the key resources? Do I need a server infrastructure, a physical infrastructure? Do I need programmers? Do I need a brand, a strong brand? Not every company needs a strong brand. Do I need intellectual property? If you're Skype, well, you know, the IP there is a very strong key resource, right? What are the key things that you need to have to do what you have on the right-hand side. And then you want to ask yourself, what are the key things I need to do to do what I have on the right-hand side? Do I do research and development? 
Do I have Google Labs or not if I'm Google? Do I just do marketing and sales? Remember the story from, from Clay where he shows that a lot of big companies in the US got rid of everything just to focus at the end of the day on, on branding and marketing? What are the key things that you're keeping in your business model to do what you have on the right-hand side? And then, what are the key partners you're going to work with? So if you're Zynga, well, you have the choice to do it yourself or to build on the back of Facebook, right? because that can help you scale quicker. And now, well, what are they trying to do? The reverse. Okay, now they got their scale. Now they want to try to do it alone. So what are the key partners that can leverage your business model? And once you know what you have here on the left-hand side in terms of resources, activities, and partnerships, very quickly, you can sketch out the key costs that you will have in your business model. Now, is anyone, any single concept up there new to you? Of course not. They're pretty straightforward. We try to avoid any type of jargon. But what we wanted to do when we put this together is to have a concept that describes all the important decisions you will make in your company in terms of business logic, okay? So this is just a concept. Now let's turn, it, let's turn it into a tool where it really becomes a canvas where I can sketch out my business model. So let's take away the clutter and turn it into a canvas and now I can start putting a post-it note saying, hey, who are my customer segments? What am I offering them? Well, if this is what I'm offering them, what are the key resources that I need? What are the key activities that I need to perform? And at the end of the day, you have a simple equation where the revenue streams have to be bigger than the cost structure. But the beauty of it is that you put everything on one image, on one canvas, on one slide, or on one poster, if you're doing that on a wall, on the poster, like we'll do this afternoon, and those who are joining my workshop. Okay? Why, when you do that, you'll have a better conversation because you just made it tangible. It's a huge cognitive jump moving away from the blah, blah, blah to sketching it out. Okay? Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Let's look at an example. And I'll use one that's not coming from software. Because I think the most important thing, the most important thing I want to leave you with is after this talk, I'd like you to open up your eyes to innovative business models in any industry you know. If you read an article on an interesting company, ask yourself, well, did they change something in the business model? Could I do that in my software company? Because it's not like product innovation where it has to be industry specific. You can learn from any type of business model innovation. Okay? The one we're going to look at is in coffee. First illustration, and then I'm going to get you to do this. So why coffee? Why should I get? Some of the smartest software entrepreneurs to think about coffee business models. Does that have to do with software? Well, we all drink a lot of coffee and software. I have my own software startup. And because it's a really interesting case from which we can learn a couple of things. And one thing that I think is really important that I want, want you to open up your, your mind on that. Let me start with a question. I'll, I'll take Switzerland because that's where I come from and there, that's where I have the data. How much do you think did the amount of money we pay for coffee consumed at home, how much do you think did that change over the last couple of years? Do we pay, here we're in a commodities business, right? Do we pay 20% less, 20% more? What would your guess be? Less, okay, commodities business, how much less? 
Double, somebody says. If somebody says double, some said less. How much less would you? Okay, well, without taking into account <laughs> the currency exchange, that was a disaster for my software company. I can guarantee you that. How, how much less if you say less? Somebody said double. Mark said double. How much less? Those who said less. Half. Fifty percent less. Ten times more. Okay. Well, you know what? <laughs> What's your name? Trevor. Trevor, you're actually pretty close. Okay. In Switzerland, and you know we're not known for throwing money out of the window. Okay, that's why we have banks. We pay <laughs> 600 to 800 percent more per gram of coffee we consume. And it's not George Clooney who advertises for this brand here, which you might see, for Nespresso. Who's heard of Nespresso? Hands up. Okay. Nespresso has changed the price for espresso consumed at home. They get us to pay 600 to 800% more in Switzerland and in a lot of countries around the world. Okay, now why is that? Well, they invented the Nespresso machine. But the interesting thing here is, they did it with a different business model. If we had a little bit more time, I'd ask you, well, okay, this is the machine. This is the product. Machine, for those of you who don't know, where you take single portion coffee in an aluminum um, um, and pod, you put it in, you press, click on top, and out comes a really good espresso with a crema on top. It's like a Milano and the espresso bar, okay? It's really good. And I'm honest here, it is good, okay? Now, it's not just that, and I would ask you how they did it. Let's do this together because I think it's more important that you actually sketch out your business model than, than taking a, a third-party case. But what's impressive here are the results. It's one of the fastest growing entities of Nestle, which is a big food company, the biggest in the world, has average growth rates of 30%. It's pretty good for a big company. If you're a startup, well, you start from nothing. You want more than 30%, right? But it represents about 3.2 billion US dollars, and they still have 30% growth rates. So that's pretty substantial. Question is, if we take the business model canvas, well, what business model did they design around this machine with the pods? What did they do? So I'll give this to you very quickly, and then you'll work on your business model. So I'm showing you this so you can sketch out yours. Well, first they said, you know, there's the machine and the pod. So how are we going to distribute the machine? We're going to sell the Nespresso machine through all retail channels possible to households and a little bit to business. 85% here, 15% here. And we'll earn money from one-time machine sales, but most of that will go to our partners who make the machines. We don't want to earn money from that. Because they're going to sell the pods. And that's where they want to make money, 600 to 800% more than any other coffee manufacturer in the espresso field. Okay? So how does this look? Well, they sell Nespresso pods through their own channels, mail order first, then call center, then Nespresso.com, and you might know about Nespresso stores now, to the same customers here. Which means they built up their own distribution channels. But why would they not just use retail like they did up here? Why would they use their own channels? Are they silly because that costs a lot of money to build? And it might have a smaller reach than the retail giants that are out there. Why would they do that? Keep? Keep the price high, okay. They can control the price. What else? 
branding, right? The relationship with the customer, it's direct, it's not indirect. Captivate the audience. It's actually one main reason why this makes a lot of sense. And as software entrepreneurs, you should... Price was close. Margins. margins, right? They keep all the margins. Now, why can they do that? Because, well, once you bought the machine, so they tried to push the machines to as many people as possible through retail outlets. Once you have the machine, you can only use Nespresso pods. And they're the only ones who sell them. So what does that mean? There's another important component to the business model. If they're the only ones who can sell them. Lock-in, lock that's, that's what it is. But what do they need to, to vend that lock-in? Patents, right? So here we have money made through the repetitive pod sales. But to protect that, here in the key resources, they need a lot of patents in addition to the large brand and they have the coffee and production facilities. But see this strategic choice they made here. Push through retail. Once you got it, you're locked in, and you buy it in, directly through them. Sounds quite similar to Apple, right? It's a similar model. Very similar. With the music with the iPod, well, you were locked in once you started putting, remember those phrase, that phrase, thousand songs in your pocket. That was a product innovation, but it was mainly a strategic trap to keep you in there. Same thing with the App Store. It's a strategic trap okay, to create a long-term relationship where you can't switch. Good. So activities, I'll keep it short. Business to consumer distribution, the first time Nestle actually did that, selling to consumers rather than to businesses. And you get the costs pretty quickly, production, business to consumer distribution and marketing. George Clooney is something that's very expensive for them. But throughout the world, except in the US, it's George Clooney who represents the brand. Okay, so interesting business model here. The point I want you to keep in mind is there was a product here and a business model around it. You know what? When Nestle started out with Nespresso, Nespresso almost failed. With exactly the same machine, same product, same machine, but different business model. How did that business model look? And it was actually the inventor who came up, who was the CEO and who came up with the first business model. They wanted to sell the Nespresso system through a joint venture partnership with machine manufacturers to offices. Okay? So, the sales force of the machine manufacturer would sell the Nespresso system from Nestle to offices. Two things failed here. Offices were not interested, and the sales force couldn't have cared less about this, right? They didn't care about just another product to sell. Nespresso was so close to closing down. The only reason the board kept them alive was that they had a warehouse full of 10,000s of machines. So the board said, well, we might as well try something else. So they brought in a new CEO from Philip Morris, who was in consumer goods, and who changed the business model to what we have seen, what became a success. So focusing on product, same goes for technology. Focusing on product or technology is not 
enough. If you want to build a competitive advantage, you need to think beyond that. In this case, it was even the difference between success and failure. So we need to take into account the business model much, much more. Okay? Now, they're going on there, building another business model around a new machine, which is focusing on, not on espresso, but on, on cappuccino, which they consider a different market. And here's one they just came up with to turn us men into perfect fathers, <laughs> which is the babiness machine. And they're still searching for the right business model for taking this, putting it in, and in 30 seconds, you have formula, perfect milk coming out. 30 seconds, you know, five in the morning, you know the difference between 30 seconds and, and 10 minutes, okay? Now, I want you to do, uh, we're going to distribute the canvases now in groups of two again. Each of you is going to get a canvas, and each of you has one of these um, little studies. So this is actually post-it notes on steroids. So if, if you, they were distributed, some might, might have fell down. So what I want you to do now is to sketch out your business models. I'll show you how to do it. I'll give you some ground rules, okay? So before you start talking, some ground rules. Okay, listen to me while, while they're distributing this, okay? Now, I want, let's see, Michael, right? Okay, Michael and Judy. Judy. Michael and Judy are going to sketch out each other's business models. So, Michael is the understander, the interviewer. Michael's task is to understand Judy's business model. Okay? So, what is Michael going to do? He's going to ask Judy, well, what are your customer segments? Your most important customer segments. So, Judy is going to give a couple and you're going to put up the studies, okay? Listen, listen, listen. Ground rules, ground rules. You don't ever write on a canvas, okay? That's a crime. You use studies. Now, for each element, you use a separate study. Okay, why is that? Why would you use separate studies? No bullet points allowed on studies, just like with slides. Because you can take them away again, because Judy might make up her mind. He says, she says, Oh, that's not a very important segment. You can take it away. But more important, more important, this is really important, is once you sketch them all out, once you have your business model existing, well, you want to start thinking of how this could change. What if you have a customer segment that is disappearing? You know, maybe in two years that customer segment doesn't exist. You take it away. What's the consequence on the channels? Maybe you can take some channels away. You can start playing with this, okay? So I'll give you eight minutes. Judy is, her only task is to explain. Michael is doing all the work. Judy can lean back, but she's going she's gonna to give all the information to Michael. So you got a canvas, you got the studies. Eight minutes to sketch out your business model, okay? Let's go. Okay, let's do this together. Let's do this together. So, did anybody see my magic clicker? I, I left it somewhere while explaining stuff on the way. The, oh, here it is. Good. So, basically, um, 
This one, you can get it for free on the internet. It's even under a Creative Commons license at the address here. So I like giving stuff away for free. So you can find, you can find the canvas there. And it's made, designed for big posters, okay? And to follow Jason's lead, to be fully transparent, I'm actually helping this little startup in Germany with these things. So um, we are affiliated. Now, what, what you want to know is just with these, be careful, take one. If you don't, if you take two, they won't stick as well. If you just take one, it will be the best thing you've used um, um, better than post-it notes, okay? So actually, it's pretty powerful, but you need to, they're a bit delicate. So let's, let's continue together. I know it was a bit short, but basically, it was pretty easy to do, right? Pretty straightforward, no? Not too complicated. Try to avoid any kind of jargon. What happens when you do this is that very quickly, and actually in a software company, when you work with enterprise clients, it can help you pretty quickly sketch out the business model of your clients, and it will help you to, better, to design better products for them. You basically move beyond this, because what you're going to have is you're going to have a negotiation on any sticky or study that you're going to put up on the, on the visual poster or, or little um, canvas there that you have with you, and you'll get to this you'll get to a better understanding, much clearer picture of what you're talking about. Because you visualized it, and because it will be clear. Okay? So that's the, the first advantage of doing this. You'll just have a better conversation. Now, still leaves us a little bit with the question, well, how do we come up with interesting new business models? And this is, I think, a very important one, because it implies a very big change in the way we design business models. We come up with business models. And when I say design, I don't mean design like form. I really mean this idea of design as process. But maybe not as much as software design, even if that is changing quite a bit. But like an architect. So who's heard of Frank Gehry? Frank Gehry is a pretty famous architect. One of the iconic buildings he's made is the Guggenheim Museum. So when Frank Gehry was brought in with his team to work on the Guggenheim Museum, the mayor said, well, you know, our, we have one of the ugliest cities in Spain, in the Basque country, and we want to change our city through this building. That's a pretty substantial task. Now, is it heavenly intuition or creative genius that rains down on Frank Gehry and his team to come up with something like this? No. It's actually a very structured creative process where the most important part is multiple models, multiple sketches of the same phenomena going in very different directions, very different alternatives. So Frank Gehry will, before he actually makes something, he will talk to people and say, do you, do you like this, like this? No, well, you want it more like this? Okay, great. The next meeting is gonna come back. So you like this, this is what you wanted. Next meeting he comes back and he says, does this look good? What are you going to tell me? Has nothing to do with what, what, what I showed last week. Oh, you don't like it? So what, what is it that you don't like? You know, what doesn't, doesn't work, right? So Frank Gehry and his team explore alternative models in parallel to figure out, well, what's the best one going to be? So it's not about multiple models or prototypes to refine. It's to find the best one, to find, well, how could the ma ma design mature? Now, what does that mean for us? It's, exactly, it's actually the, exactly the same thing for business models, is that we often fall in love too quickly with our business models, or we go for, 
you know, the most traditional one in software, rather than taking the time to work more like architects, where they will say, okay, first sketch, it's just the first sketch. What if I gave away my product for free? What if I had a business model without fixed costs, just with variable costs? What if I had a business model where I worked together with my biggest competitor? What if I had a business model doing this and that? So exploring alternatives very quickly will allow you to find better ones. So don't go for the obvious solution. Try to explore. Remember Nespresso, the Nespresso example? The right business model was the difference between success and failure. And in some cases, without the right business model, you're actually not even going to be able to commercialize a, a product or a value proposition. So doing this without losing time, it's not about time, with, not about losing time. By doing this, you'll find better business models. So thinking through alternatives, just like for a graphical user interface, you might explore different possibilities as well. You want to explore different pricing mechanisms, subscription, auction, and so on, okay? Follow me on this? This is really important because it will lead us to better solutions. So again, this using a canvas like this, not just to sketch out your existing business model, but to imagine possible alternatives. That is very, very powerful, okay? Oops, I had a little case study here, but we won't have time to work on that. So we're going to switch in the, in the afternoon session, the workshop, I'll do a bit more on that. But I'll leave you with two, two things. The first one, and you know this from customer development by Steve Blank and, and the Lean Startup Movement by Eric Ries, well, we need to test before we build. Now, why is it? I'll give you one example from the product field. Um, who, who has ever heard of this or used it even? Who's heard of Flow TV? Flow TV? <laughs> Have you used it? Okay. I actually read an article about this. I don't know the case very well. I just read an article in the Financial Times, in the FT. It said Flow TV is phasing out its product after a year of existence. And they lost a bunch of money in the process. Flow TV allows you to watch TV throughout the US on mobile network. How much money do you think they lost in the process? What would your guess be? Very expensive. They actually lost $800 million. Okay? So that's an $800 million business model mistake. The product worked perfectly fine, but there were no customers. They didn't test their business model. Now, lucky for them or for the managers, there was a lucky ending. They sold a Spectrum license for $1.2 billion. But I'm not sure you want to do business like that, okay? So basically what it means for us talking about business models, well, even with the smartest people in the room, with the best forecasts that you can get on paper, everything you do inside the building, to use the, the whole customer development terms, well, it's nothing else than a set of hypotheses or just simple guesses. But still, you can design a better business model just by thinking about recurring revenues, thinking about switching costs, but you still don't know if it's going to work. It looks great on paper. What you really want to do, and this is, you know, this was an eye-opener for me when I started working with Steve Blank, who's heard of Steve Blank, 
This is the Bible in Silicon Valley, now together with Eric Reese's book, which builds actually on customer development. You can test business models before you build them. And that is really important. So basically it means getting out of the building, talking to customers, and testing every component of your business model. And you can think of this in terms of layers. Okay? This is your best guess of a new business model. You sketched it out with your team as a startup or as a, uh, you know, a company creating a new business area. Then you want to figure out the second layer. What are the most important underlying hypotheses that have to be true? Okay, that the customer has a budget to pay, that the pricing mechanisms are right, that the technology can work, that the partners will agree, blah, 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 right? So you, you figured out what are the key hypotheses, and then you want to start testing them, one after the other. So you don't fall in the same trap as Qualcomm with Flow TV. You can test your business model before you build it. So the search phase is really important. And building means hiring expensive sales force, putting the structures, organizational structures in place. You can do that before. Now, do you have a little bit of patience for a last thing before lunch? Hands up, honestly. Okay, good. So I'll show you one more thing. I actually had to lend an iPad from somebody because I, I lost mine um, in Paris in the train. So if we can switch to the iPad now. So this is a product dem demo, I'll be honest, but I'll show it only because I think it really advances the way we think about business models. Okay, so this is not a sales pitch because basically this is a, is, is a small product of what we want to build over, over time. It's just a brick of the software company we're trying to build. So here's a, a tool called the business model toolbox where you can design a business model. And I'll leave you with a one minute demo just to show you where we're going with business model thinking. I'll create a new canvas here and we'll sketch out the business model for this app. Okay, for this app. Oops, didn't want to. So let's just keep it simple and say this is an app. We can sell it to entrepreneurs like yourself, and some of you might be consultants in the room. Okay, what's a channel to sell an app? What's a channel to sell an app, a business app? This is the App Store, okay? So let's say I'm going to sell this app, okay? So app sales. Now, this is doing nothing else than what we can do on paper. Where it gets interesting if I can play around with revenue, for, with revenue estimations. So on the upper left-hand corner, here I have a calculator. I'll switch on the calculator and I'll say, how many entrepreneurs um, are there around here that could be interested? Let's say 30,000. How many consultants, the market size, how many consultants could be interested? Let's say 30,000. And now let's just do a quick estimation. I'll choose a revenue stream. So I can immediately choose here, type of revenue stream. I'm selling the app. But since I'm selling through the app store, it's not just the sales, what do I have to do? I have to pay Apple, right? Okay. A pain for anybody in here who's, who's making apps. Okay, so sales minus transaction cut of the app, I'll sell it to entrepreneurs. How many can I reach the first year? Let me say 15%. How many times are they going to buy it? It's an app you buy once. How much does it cost? $29. How much do I pay to Apple? 30%. So immediately I can see, okay, I'm earning here 130 and I have to pay 39,000 to, to Apple. 
That won't even cover the development cost for something like this. So I need to play with the business model. So let's do something else. Let's do a web app, okay? I'll change the color here because it's a different value proposition. And if I have a web app, I'm independent of Apple. So again, I can choose now the web. And I'm going to sell it to consultants. Why? Because consultants have a different job to be done than entrepreneurs. Consultants want to work with their customers and they want to sell it over years and years, right? They want to create revenues. So if I'm on the web selling to consultants that wanted it again and again, what could I do in terms of revenue stream? Rather than selling it, I could do a subscription, okay? Straightforward. Now let me choose this revenue stream, subscription, for a web app to consultants. I'll use the same numbers, 15%. Let's say they're going to pay maybe $9 per month. And immediately, you can see, okay, that changes quite a bit. So we all know that subscriptions make more money than sales, but when you have this, and you can throw in ballpark figures, you can play around with your business model very quickly without opening a spreadsheet. So I think prototyping business models, doing this very rapidly in a meeting to sketch out ideas is going to become incredibly important in the coming years. Don't forget you can get regular updates from Business of Software via the newsletter. Sign up for free at businessofsoftware.org updates. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.